Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Hey everyone, it's Fahim from Bengalis of New York, Geekobor. It's another beautiful day here in New York City. Super glad it's not raining anymore and it's getting a little bit warmer, but I'm still wearing my sweater. And of course, as always, I got with me my super handsome co-host, Cam. Hey everyone. Cam's a bit darker today. Yeah, I just got back from Bermuda. I did a cruise to Bermuda. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, seven day cruise. I've never eaten so much in my life. It's so easy to be gluttonous on a cruise. It's really bad. They have buffets there, no? It's, it's so much food. It's it's so bad. I felt so bad for the staff. Like a lot of them are from like South Asia, Southeast Asia, and I saw one Bengali person, but a lot of Filipinos and a lot of um, Indians. And I just they they were probably like these gluttonous Americans, wasting so much food, including me. It was just really bad. I ate so much. It was really bad, but it was beautiful though. I I loved it. Um, but it's interesting. It was fun. Cruises are fun. No brown food. Yeah, they had brown food. It wasn't yeah. as good as our food. They had tarkari. They, they, they actually had tarkari. I actually took some pictures. They had, they had bhatta. They had bhatta. Uh, what kind of bhatta? They had eggplant bhatta. And I took a picture of it. It was bhaji at like no, there was nowhere near bhatta. But they called <laughs> it eggplant bhatta. What what cruise? I took a picture of it. I'll, I'll post it. What cruise line? It was Ro- uh, I'm sorry. It was uh, Norwegian, which was really good. It was a Norwegian escape. That's awesome. And it's basically eighteen stories. I don't know how they fit all this stuff in there. It's ridiculous. It's like it's like a building. It's like a moving building. But Bermuda itself was really nice. It reminds me actually a lot of some of the parts in Bermuda reminded me of Bangladesh because it's like you have like um, despair, like you have to do, like there's like some really posh areas and then you have like some like like Rwanda like really really grungy mm-hmm. areas. So it's really interesting. We took a we rented a scooter and we rode around the entire island for a day and a half. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, now you guys know what cruise to take if you want Bengali food. Yeah, yeah, or not to take. But uh, I'm uh, really excited because today we have a special guest, someone that Brooklyner.com, uh, it's an online blog, they named the face of Kensington. Uh, Shahana Hanif is here. Really excited. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Did I pronounce that right? That's right, Shahana. Great. Um, so Shahana does a lot of uh, organizing in a neighborhood in Brooklyn uh, called Kensington. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, it's uh, sort of uh, not all the way south of Brooklyn, but it's south of like, um, it's uh, south of uh, Williamsburg. Uh, a lot of Bangladeshi people in, in Kensington. I actually grew up in Kensington, but uh, I, uh, my sister was, was born in 2005, and I, there was a lot of things I didn't like about the area, about the, the mindset of the Bangladeshi people there, and instead of staying and trying to combat that mindset, I was a coward and I left, and I went to Staten Island of all places. But Shahana's still there. <laughs> I know, but Shahana's stayed and is doing a lot of great work on just organizing the community, but also combating the mindset in in the in the Bangladeshi community there, which I think is phenomenal. So go ahead. So just tell us about what you're doing and, uh, you know, um, and uh, we'll talk. Sure. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. So I was born and raised in Kensington and um, currently, you know, it has the largest density of Bangladeshis in the borough of Brooklyn. 
Um, and that to me says something as someone whose parents migrated here in the 80s. My father came in the early 80s and is among a group of men who are called ship jumpers. So he was working, you know, on a ship and then when it docked in New York, him and several others stayed. They stayed and then his first neighborhood was Crown Heights, which isn't too far from Kensington. Um, but then later, I guess, the the path brought them to Kensington and so he was among the first batch of men who really put work into building out Kensington um, and making it what it is today and the Kensington comprises of of very visible landmarks um, which I will never ever ever forget so there's four mosques in very close proximity and um, a lot has changed over the time. I'm 28 right now and I haven't moved once. So I'm fortunate that my parents um, bought the house we live in. And so we've got this, this asset that is, is ours. And that means that we are protected from being displaced. And yep. many families have been displaced, but many families are also moving in as uh, recently arrived migrants and re recently arrived immigrants of, of those who are bringing families um, through various channels of immigration paths. My mother came after my parents married in 1990 and um, she too came in an interesting way when um, the passports, many passports were um, what we would call jali, which is um, the, the photo used to be someone else's or the passport belonged to someone else and they just nicely yeah. removed the photo, yeah. put her photo, um, and she was able to come here without... Why couldn't conflict. she just come as... He I wasn't think there was... I, yeah, I, I'm not sure of like the, the, the yeah. deeper history and yeah. the nuances of immigration at the time. Yeah. Um, but the 80s is when Bangladeshis really an influx yeah. of Bangladeshis came. But our migration path is very different from Pakistanis and right. Indians. So that immigration history is deeply uh, important when we talk about Bangladeshis in the context of New York City and all of these different enclaves, whether it be Jamaica, whether it be um, Kensington, Parkchester. Um, many families, of course, also came uh, with various visas that are uh, based on their education level and their work basis. Um, but Kensington is not that. Kensing, many of, almost everybody who's come to Kensington um, came through either the ship jumping route yeah. or through um, relatives, diversity visa, and or um, our, our undocumented path. Are you from Shondi? I'm from Chittagong. Chittagong, okay, that's interesting because mm -hmm. most of the people in Kensington that that were called jump, ship jumpers were shown deep, not shown deep right. yeah. mm -hmm. So I had a lot of friends, interesting that growing up, they, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, they had half brothers and sisters that were Hispanic. Like, yeah. I had like three or four friends, half brothers and sisters were Hispanic. Um, it's because they came, their dads came here in the early 80s and to get their papers, they married Hispanic women. Yeah. And so they had children. Right. And, and there's yeah. a long history of that kind of solidarity yeah. within. Latinx communities and black communities. Um, and all of that is really captured well in Vivek Bald's book, Bengali Harlem. Um, mm -hmm. Although it really focuses on Harlem yeah. as one of the, the place-making areas where our communities thrived in solidarity. But we're in a different time where anti-blackness and um, welcoming other um, ethnic communities is with hostility rather than through solidarity. Yeah. Um, 
And so even that history of like having married um, non-Bangladeshi, non-Muslim women is not something that the community really like, you know, um, talks about mm -hmm. openly. Yeah. But it is something that really uh, is important in talking about our history here yeah. in New York City. Like how did we build community? How did we gain citizenship in a country that necessarily didn't want us, right? There were many, many legislation in place that excluded us from coming here. And if it weren't for the civil rights movement, if it weren't for black people literally fighting um, to end slavery and to end practices that were volatile, uh, we wouldn't, Bangladeshis would not be here. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I would go far as to say that we have a lot to do with um, changing some of these uh, neighborhoods for the better. There's this interesting article about Bangladeshis in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. um, this, this, I think it's out, maybe also called Kensington in Buffalo, where we Bangladeshis have gone in and they've completely revitalized the area and uh, housing prices uh, have increased dramatically, rates of crime, rates of crime have decreased dramatically. Kensington's the same way. In the early 90s, Kensington was another great area. Right. And now it's, I mean, it's, I talk to people at Kensington, wow, Kensington, great schools, we're great in a great neighborhood. Um, and I think we had a lot, Bangladeshis had a lot to do with that because we Of course, in, of course. Very little, we, I mean, we, we engage in very little crime. Mm -hmm. um, we take good care of our properties and those things that contribute to high property values. And that's what being a Bengali really is about. Raise a family, be, we're really family oriented. We want our kids to have a good education. We hate messing around growing up. If yeah. I did something outside of going to school, my parents would like, yeah. you know, act the top or that's basically I what mean, it ideally, is. I mean, ideally, we would love for all communities to stay um, in their communities and build homes that yeah. are theirs. And so Kensington is, of course, uh, among those communities where I have thrived. My family has thrived. Yeah. Many communities, many other families have thrived and continue to thrive. But of yeah. course, they're still on the cusps, um, patriarchy. And like that is what really pushed me or elevated me into the work that I do right now. And so mm -hmm. the beginnings of my activism was really noticing um, how in our masjid or even in our home, how girls, you know, from a very, very young age were excluded or segregated because of that identity that we hold. And so in mosque spaces, you know, although we were getting the same Islamic education, we were separated. And then at, at a certain age, we were sort of ousted. Like, you're, you're done reading the Quran, goodbye. And then same thing when we were playing outside, I saw boys build out what is now this beautiful, brilliant cricket team. And, and at the same time, while they were building this mentorship, me and my sister were like at home, like trying to find something to do, but like we would much rather be playing outside. Yeah. But it was very evident that like girls were treated differently and through a discipline that was based on gender. Um, instead of being like, what would you like to do? And having the decision-making power to be like, I want to play outside and like parents being really engaged with that. And I understand parents having fears of like sexual harassment um, or like, um, boys touching inappropriately and like there are many many cases of harassment like in our mosque even that was like later that many of us learned was going on in the mosque but had we not told one other friend we would not know that this is something that is like happening across the board and everyone thinks it's okay um, so the, those were the early days and I was very introverted growing up so I, I held on to a lot of these issues that I saw and observed 
and um, but really recognized as something pivotal in in my making that like I was a young girl who was gonna be homebound until my parents either got me married or like I got a really really good job so the paths were very like clear mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that broke when I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition called lupus at 17. I was going into 12th grade and um, that had physically changed and debilitated my entire body. And going through that further propelled the way I understand um, gender because I saw that a lot of people who were coming in to see me um, were picking at my body. They were like, you you know if you weren't so fat you would have not gotten diagnosed maybe you should go to the gym and maybe and this was at the same time while they were coming to see me and like well you know with well wishes of like feel better right but i noticed the way that the community is um so insensitive at points of care and that the care that that could have been distributed um, was not necessarily something that we knew, know how to do. Um, and then I also recognized that like I had never read um, any storybooks, any books or even in movies where I had seen a young woman, young brown Muslim woman, um, with disabilities or with chronic conditions or with lifelong debilitating diseases um, and really fighting through it. What I was told at home and from other family members was like, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone you have this. Wow. And then for some time until like I was in remission, um, I, I felt completely like an outcast. Like I couldn't go out because I looked so different. And the, 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 the way the disease uh, manifests on the body is um, very, very debilitating. And so I lost mobility for a, a period of time. And then um, because the disease has no cure, uh, we, we get the, the treatment that is often used for cancer patients. So I had undergone um, several doses of chemo oh, and I lost my hair and like all of these things like having hair having black hair or being thin and being pretty those are the markers uh, that I had learned um, meant women or meant girl um, and all of this is fed to us as really young people rather than being like when you're older what would you like to be instead of so instead of having our own choice it's like you're gonna be a doctor and you're gonna be this and you're gonna... um, so I was at this interesting crux of my life where I was realizing the sociological impacts of being a young woman in New York City in a place where my parents were still trying to understand their place right because they dreamt that they would be they would be here but then eventually go back but the truth of the matter is we're here we're here to stay this kensington is our home um and then what also happened are the broader questioning of systems of institutions so really looking at the fact that prior to getting diagnosed i didn't have health insurance because we just didn't have a practice of going to doctors okay um and when we went to doctors it was because there was an emergency so back in those days like doing the yearly checkup was yeah, not it was like we had a guy who, you know, a neighborhood doctor who we went to for annual vaccinations. Okay. But in terms of a long-term health care plan, there was none of that. Okay. 
So I began to question that. I was like, so no health insurance, and now I'm stuck in a place where I don't really know what my health rights are. Like as someone who just got diagnosed at 17, um, who should have been in, in last year of uh, high school, graduating, doing all the stuff that 12th graders do. Um, so questioning uh, the medical institution and then after having lost mobility, I relied on public transportation, um, but recognized more deeply that um, how it is to ride on a bus, a public bus or the train as someone who needs to sit, who needs to sit, but physically might not be read as someone who needs to sit down. So really, really scrutinizing the MTA and accessibility as like a concept. Like there are people who use the MTA daily, but if you are unable to walk, you know, go down the stairs, it is very limited for you. Um, and then similarly with school, it, initially I was um, studying to be a doctor, but I recognized just how much the toll was in like studying and getting ready for whether it be chem exams or other exams. Um, and asking professors or faculty to be like more empathetic was hard like this is so i at that stage at 17 18 19 became my own advocate and i recognized that like if i am in pain and i'm unable to talk about it imagine how many others are experiencing this and have no one to talk to so i began writing i began writing as a way to heal and understand these different barriers of of life and like of my environment um, and as a way to remember, really, as a way to archive this history of change, like, you know, what I knew then at 17 was that from 17 to the rest of my life, I will always have lupus mm -hmm. and it will always uh, inform my next move because anywhere I was traveling after getting lupus, I had to figure out like, okay, if I go to Bangladesh now, who's going to be my doctor? Will there be medicine? If I stay for six months, will I have um, an ample amount of medications uh, refilled? If I fall and like damage something, will I be? So like all this stuff around caring and safety planning. Um, so I start writing this blog called Shahana with Lupus. Yeah, and you know, some of my friends were like, for the first time ever, like peeking into my life. And this is in a time when like, you know, right now in, on Instagram, everyone's life is on it. Like every intimate detail. Mm -hmm. I was writing in a time when like, I knew my friends, but I didn't know about their intimate lives. I knew nothing about them. We were, I think at that time, 2009 is when I started writing. Facebook was just a concept that we joined. So I was writing on Blogger, Blogspot. And um, it was like everything from like, you know, I was dating someone, he, he dumped me. And like that impact of like, you know, why did it happen, that impact. And then when I, for the first time, interviewed to get accessoride um and i didn't get it and like realizing that like i needed to prove disability to get this basic basic access to transportation mm -hmm. so like questioning all of these things and inequities and um the ways in which others decide how you get to live essentially um after i start writing i also um uh was keen on telling my community about what was happening. Um, I felt that it was absolutely necessary because 
it's my home, it's my community. These people have always been my family. And so why draw lines when it comes to something um, that is painful? Like pain is when I want people to understand um, how we can all really come together in a moment of solidarity. Yeah. So so people know lupus, there's no cure for lupus, correct? There's no cure for there's, lupus. There's ways where they can make you feel better, but there's better, no actual cure. And, you know, many of us are in remission, in periods of remission. But to come to the stage, I have been under the knife several times. So like both of my hips have been replaced. Okay. Um, and that means that like the joint literally is taken, taken out, out and then and replaced with ceramic plastic parts. Now, is it some, is it, is it a, an illness that's common in the Bengali community? It's very common. Really? And it's actually very common among um, black and brown women. So through this journey of writing and um, on Instagram, I curate a series called The Sick Weight the hashtag is the sick weight and through that um i now like shed light on all my doctor's appointments because even though i present now as someone who is doing well i walk i've gotten all these surgeries to like you know come back to life as like a normal person um the i still bear the brunt of having this issue that comes that is that interferes in random ways and through that um, profiling on Instagram and then my blog, um, I've connected with so many young Bangladeshi women mm. who have lupus. And then okay. I had taken a trip in 2016 to, to Dhaka and I connected there. They have like one of the, the largest lupus foundation of Bangladesh. There's a lupus foundation that, is, that has chapters across uh, not just the U.S., but nationally. That's crazy. And Bangladesh has one of the largest. And, I mean, healthcare in Bangladesh is another story. Oh, there is gosh. no health insurance. There's no equivalent to health insurance, which means that many young women are dying as a result of this. And when we talk about that in the same lens of America, where health care is inaccessible to really black and brown women, that means we are also in that pipeline to die. So really being critical about the ways in which legislation um, are written and then passed. And now under the Trump administration, what is happening is that he is opposed to research that would fund, that would be funding um, diseases, rare diseases like lupus um, and others. And now even with climate change, new diseases are mm -hmm. on the rise. Not having adequate research get done for new medications is a horror. Not having money that is spent um, to create apparatuses like for the replacement surgeries is a harm. So there are all these points of harms that um, directly impact young women like me because legislation is against um, cures. So I've spent the first, you know, from like 20, 2008 when I got diagnosed to um, 2012 when I like got my right hip replaced, mm -hmm. uh, really centering understanding just like my surroundings. Like I knew I needed an intimate care network and I didn't want to spend my life moving around or like I knew that I needed to build a really good relationship with my parents. Um, at an age where I felt like, you know, yeah, I had dreams of moving out. Like I felt like, you know, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to move and um, my life will be sort of like separate and I'll see my parents whenever. Um, yeah, I felt like, no, like I'm at this juncture where like I know I depend on my parents for my care. 
um, as much as they do for their care, right? So like this like very reciprocal relationship needed to be built. Um, I deepen my relationships with my two younger sisters because yeah, this isn't hidden. Me having lupus is not hidden and it has informed every part of my life. Is it hereditary? It could be hereditary. I have not been able to trace the genetics of it within my family history, mm -hmm. um, but it's also environmental. And like right now, if we talk about climate change, we have to talk about disability justice and talk about how um, people are getting sicker in, in, in this world that is filled with toxic um, waste and, mm -hmm. and garbage. Um, and so that like unpacking of like the trash starts in our home and in our community. So, you know, my, my path in undergrad was I was very involved in building out our Desi Club, our Bangla Students Association. Yes, BSA. Mm -hmm. and, then, BSA. and I had a real political lens to it. So, like, I just wasn't, I was happy to have parties and cultural events, mm -hmm. but it was, it, it was important at the same plane to talk about domestic violence. So, right. like, I was, you know, really keen on bringing in Saki, which is one of the oldest organizations. Uh, that that has been working on domestic violence for now it'll be 35 years, um, bringing them onto campus to, to, to host upstander trainings on like how to be a positive respondent like when it comes to issues at home or issues with your friendships, etc. And you're head on with a case of violence. Um, and then also was intimately tied with the Women's Center and um, bega began to see myself as someone who really wanted to build the power of Bangladeshis. So at that time, senior year of undergrad is when I started working um, as a tenant organizer in um, an organization called CAV. And they organized, they've been organizing Asian communities for um, several decades now and they were they helped incubate the, what we know as the taxi workers alliance um uh, they organized uh, asian sex workers several decades ago um, domestic workers and um, right now they're primarily organizing working class low-income tenants in rent stabilized homes and public housing mm. so i was um building tenant power at in across public housing in New York City. Hmm. Um, we have the largest public housing stock in New York, and you know the management that operates this is the New York City Housing Authority, NYCHA. Mm -hmm. And they're awful. They're awful as a manager. And um, so working to build uh, tenant power meant building out tenant associations, and public housing in New York City is understood as homes for black communities. Um, and so also building racial and economic justice with black tenants was something that I was doing and building our curriculum and like re recognizing that like, um, yeah, we don't have the, the power language that is required to build tenant power. Uh, because I was doing this work in Bangla, not in English. Mm. Um, I was gonna ask about that. So you do a lot, you're doing a lot of organizing, you're building consensus. Two questions, one, uh, you mentioned earlier that you're an introvert. So how how do you get past this? I guess fear of social, um, uh, you know, uh, people take making assumptions about you. Yeah. The fear of I guess public speaking or having people think uh, think I don't know uh, weird thoughts about you. So how did you get past being an introvert and 
doing all these things that I mean, you would think I, an introvert can't do. Yeah, I mean, to. like, I, the phrase, I think, is extroverted introvert. So I, a friend of mine published this book called um, Shy Radicals. And so, like, for me, like, power and justice is at, like, my root. Like, that is something that's very important to me. Um, and I will go out of my way to achieve liberation for myself and for my community. Um, so, but putting myself out there started with that trajectory of writing. So, like, I was writing um, on, on that blog. I helped co-found Muslim Writers Collective. I began performing. I was the the person who curated our show in New York and then who also was the FEMC. Like I was the one opening the show, bringing in all of our speakers. Um, and that put me on like a public platform. Um, and then I was also theorizing, like a lot of all of what's, what I was understanding about Bangladeshis living in New York was not being talked about. Like these were not like, yeah. you know, in t even in 2014, like we weren't talking about um, the poverty, like we are not just the fastest growing Asian ethnic community, we are also the fastest growing community in poverty. So I feel like a lot, you know, there's a lot to celebrate about Bangladeshis in New York. But what are we doing to also build our power as a community that is living on the margins across the boroughs? Um, that those asking those questions and like writing about the ways in which organizing was taking place, um, I was writing about that. I was writing about that with a very critical lens. I was on many many panels about this work too, um, and oftentimes the only Bangladeshi because a lot of Bangladeshis do not choose this route. Mm -hmm. A lot of Bangladeshis go into working in corporate positions or private sectors um, where why not because there's money and this is like what we dream to do like our parents came here and like there was a dream to do well and yeah. to to live in conditions and circumstances that would um take us away from poverty yeah um so we're a product of that yeah we're kind of giving a lot of time i think that's one of the uh negative aspects of our we're giving we just take what we're given and we don't really push the envelope as much as we should i mean certainly in my when i was growing up in kensington i didn't see any organizers in the communities, I mean, especially female, but I didn't see any organizing. And that's hard. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's hard. Like, so when I was tenant organizing, this was at Queensbridge. Queensbridge is the largest public housing yeah. in all of North America because across the U.S., um, for those who are interested in housing and affordable housing crisis, is that many cities have demolished or gotten rid of public housing and they've changed them, they've altered them to be like 50-50 affordable and market rate. Um, to uh, to one displace poor communities from those neighborhoods and to, to help gentrification foster. Um, so that was really that work was removed from me from Kensington. I wasn't organizing in Kensington, but I was instrumental in neighborhood in being involved in neighborhood associations. So in Kensington, how I really recognized my entry point was. Um, getting involved on the community board, which meets monthly, and every district has a community board. How, how did that happen? How did you find out about it, and mm -hmm. what gave you the courage to go there? Yeah. So, I was instrumental in, um, we've got this empty, what used to be an empty place that was called the Triangle, 
and it's at the intersection of two masjid. Mm -hmm. And um, I had joined a group of people who wanted to make that triangle a plaza. And a plaza in New York um, is any space that you see that has several benches, has some trees, and it's a place to sit. Okay. And that public place was really important for me because one, Kensington is a place where a very visible marker is men in hanging out in a restaurant in the restaurant row on McDonald on McDonald Avenue. Yeah. And you're talking about the intersection is on Avenue C. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on McDonald and Church is where like the strip of uh, businesses are run by Bangladeshis and also in front of them the storefronts are always crowded with many many men mm -hmm. and that's fine yeah and that's mm -hmm. fine like yeah. whatever but then also like there is no space for women where are women doing this like hanging out or like sitting together it's in our homes and in that same timeline like this is 2014 2015 when like some of us were organizing to like make that institute that place as a public plaza where we can host programming summer events um uh, organizations like the Bangladeshi Institute of Performing Arts, like there are organizations that are, have already been running for decades, but they've always had to seek other venues to host events. So like, why not in our own neighborhood? Mm -hmm. um, so I was key in like helping that formation because I represented a body of Bangladeshis who wanted that space to be a public plaza. We wanted to make sure that we use that with the white neighbors, with our Latinx neighbors, with the other diversity of neighbors who belong to Kensington. Um, and so really scrutinizing like how young women, young girls, um, our mothers can belong in this neighborhood without feeling like they don't have a space. Um, and, and so through that work, um, there was also a chain of um, children who were tortured and killed in Bangladesh. One of them was Rajon, and this was in uh, 2015. So, Al Al right? mm -hmm. I, I think, I'm forgetting his, I think it was Samuel Rajon uh, in Bangladesh. And his death was recorded and uh, it was like, it went viral on Facebook. Um, so several of us were angered by that, uh, like people, will treat young boys who are from very, very poor backgrounds um, and like air their death on online. Mm -hmm. And this was also when the bloggers were also killed. killed. This was like that year when like every few months somebody was dying, killed, somebody yeah. was getting yeah. killed. And at that same time, all these young kids were also like dying. Um, so several of us were like, well, we want to actually speak up about the fact that like all of these bloggers have been killed and there have, has been no justice. Like our government has had no response. But we knew that this was like a contentious issue in a, in a community that has four mosques, you know, that are pretty, uh, they're well known. And so instead of going that route, we decided that we wanted to hold a rally and like a, a vigil for Rajon. Mm -hmm. And we, when, when I did that, I got in touch with the council member. That was when I learned that there was a council member who like represented constituents. Yeah, this um, is you're talking about Brad Lander? I'm talking about Brad, Brad Lander. Lander. Yeah, okay. and actually it's really important because I think most, uh, I'll tell you, uh, I, I grew up in the neighborhood, I lived in New York most of my life. 
I don't think I, I before Googling today, I don't know how I would even get in touch with my council member. Yeah, or and who it's my so council crucial. Is. It's so crucial. I don't because, know who my council member is. Well, you yeah. got to find I out. Yeah. I mean, Google. Well, now I know, but yeah. it's, it, and it's a problem, and I agree. And I think that we need to absolutely be more in, in tune with our local politicians and also just the ongoings and not just, you know, you know, just pay attention when, you know, the presidential elections uh, go Right, on. and like the... The congressional stuff is super important. The yeah. federal stuff is important because those are federal level legislation. In the New York local level, your council member has the power to decide what happens citywide. So, and lo very locally, like they have power to assign who gets onto the community board. Community board decides which developments come into the neighborhood, like which buildings um, will be sold to which developer so like land use changes mm -hmm. and this is language that like no one i didn't know what land use was or rezoning is um but these are things we need to really think about because we see the changes happening in our community but we have to ask who is making this change who is deciding and then when you you know like really pick at like who's deciding you see that there is a person there's this yeah. council member and then there's this community board a, an elected body of constituent volunteers yeah. who are making decisions about what what changes. And then the basic things, like one of the very other visible things in the strip of Kensington is there's a lot of garbage. So like things like wanting more garbage cans, waste baskets. Mm. Who do I call? How do I do that? Um, seeing that like four uh, MTA stations back to back to back have no elevators. How do I push MTA to change? Like, who makes the MTA changes? MTA isn't a local thing. MTA yeah. is decided by state legislation. So, like, these things got me really curious because the other thing I noticed was that there is, like, a rarity of Bangladeshis involved yeah. um, in actual uh, critical community organizing work. There are Bangladeshis who are very much in the fold of uh, political work, like, there are political clubs that many Bangladeshis have created to like engage voter, um, uh, increase voter engagement. So like there are Democrat Bangladeshis who are making sure that Democrat Bangladeshis vote for a particular candidate. Um, and I think that's important, creating civic engagement pipelines. But to me, it's also important to really scrutinize and see who's in the room in the conversations about the MTA. Who's in the room talking about parks? like having an ADA accessible swing in your kid's park, um, or they're not being air conditioning in your kid's school. These are all questions that get that have answers in the city council. Do you feel like uh, maybe we still have this mindset, and I think I fall into it too, where we're still, we still have this mindset that we're still, we're guests in this country maybe, still? Maybe, but I, that, that, that point of view, that perspective needs to be broken immediately in first gen kids, like we, I know I'm living here. I love going to Bangladesh, but Bangladesh is a foreign place to me. Mm -hmm. right. It's foreign. Um, no matter if I live there for two weeks, no matter if I live there for seven months. And I lived there for seven months. And I was like doing massive you know, work with Bangladeshi feminists, and I learned how to read and write during that time. Yeah, and that's actually going to be my other question, because you're, you're um, speaking in front of a lot of Bangladeshis, and I'm assuming you're speaking in Bangla, and that would actually be my biggest 
struggle is my Bala is good but I have like this no. I'm conscious of my Borishali yeah. accent and I know it. it's good so I, I, so, I, 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 so I think to myself okay I can I can certainly get up in front of people and speak in English mm. and I have never no problem getting my point across but I would have a very difficult time doing that in Bangla. So I was wondering, because you, you were born and raised here, so your yeah. Bangla must be really good, and especially to inspire people. Especially Chitagong Bangla is different. Yeah. Oh, Chitagong Chitagong Bangla. I mean, I don't speak Jabgaya. I, okay. I understand it. Okay. Um, but I do speak Shuddha Bangla well. Acha, um, and there have been instances where I've talked completely in Shuddha Bangla. But my messaging for those of us who are first generation or who have lived most of our lives here in New York or out in the States is that we ought to hold on to that language. This is a critical part of our history. Um, we literally fought to protect Bangla. Literally. We, yeah, we Not did that. Guys. We did that. We did that. And we're one of very few um, countries that, that moved a liberation movement with language at its core. Um, so that's one thing to remember. And then also, um, yeah, of course, the way we speak here is going to be different. So like, there might be people who are like, you don't speak it well. Like, but okay, like, of course my Bangla is going to be a little weird. It's going to be the, the, it's going to take shape and mold according to the context. So like, I am totally proud to speak the way I speak because it has a Brooklyn, uh, Accent gesture. To it. it has a gesture yeah. that is a concoction of different. Yeah. Accents. Yeah, my Borishali, Brooklyn. Yeah, and hey, your, your, your Bangla is good. He, but as when you speak slow, I understand Cam's Bangla perfectly. But yeah. you can tell. But well, we ought to speak accent. it. Yeah. Our fear of not speaking it shouldn't be because I don't speak it well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I speak with my family and. Mm-hmm. The my more you speak off, it, it the wrong. best way I can explain it is I went to um, Bangladesh in 2015, and uh, my uncle's a professor there, and he teaches. Literature, Bangla literature, and he's like English. It's a boring language. Look at how rich Bangla is. You're my son's Mamatubai, but in English you're a cousin. I don't know what side you're from. Are you from (laughs) my mom's side, from my dad's side? But in Bangla, to me Mamatubai, I know exactly that you're my sister's son. That's perfect, right? right? So look at how beautiful, rich our language is. Why are you guys afraid to speak it? Very good. And for me, it's also you know a key strategy in organizing Bangladeshis. Yeah, you need it. There's yeah. still so many of us who don't know how to speak English. And voter bases across all of these different places in New York City require that we are offering translation in the language, mm-hmm. but translation in a way that is accessible. Or conversations. We've got several back-to-back things coming up right now, right? We've got 2020 presidential election. There is um, a bill that might get passed, a statute that might get passed that would make um, uh, voting be ranked choice. So like you rank according to one through five of your candidates, whereas regular ballots is you pick one person and that's it. So that means we need to do voter education work in the next year um, to inform Bangladeshis that this is happening, this is gonna happen. And then, in 2021, our entire city administration is going to flip. So we're going to have a new mayor. We're going to have a new comptroller. We're going to have a new speaker. We're going to have like 34 new council members. Um, so all these opportunities to engage our community in critical ways. And that requires speaking to them in the language. Right. Right. I was at the um, Council of General's Boychaki event mm-hmm. just two days ago. And she was saying like, 
we need there are a lot of Bengalis that are afraid to take the learner permit exam because they don't know how to read English that well so right now starting next month you can take your learner's permit exam in Bangla right oh, wow. and change is coming I don't know right? that. And I'm sure a Bengali was involved in that. I mean, of course. <laughs> like, we are constantly pushing to make language access a reality for our yeah. communities. And getting involved to, in that push is important. And that yeah. really starts, like, when you show up in your community board, you'll notice that there's probably not any Bangladeshi who's elected to be on the yeah. board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing about accents, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, I'm writing a blog on this um, coming up. But, you know, one thing I've not, I noticed is... I, I work for a company, and one of the heads of my company, he's Indian. He has mm-hmm. an incredibly thick Indian accent. Google CEO, Microsoft CEO, Pepsi's ex-CEO, all Indian-born. Even MasterCard uh, CEO. Yeah, they're all, they have, and they have heavy accents. I can't think of a Bengali person. I feel like we're more conscious of it, and I feel like Indians own it a lot more. Um, they're and fluent. The, and, and also, the other thing is, and I think this is important, it's not even just the accent, it's, I think... Indians have accents. My my like my my uh, my president. He has an accent, and uh, but it's a sentence structure. I think Indians have uh, are better at sentence structure than mm-hmm. than Bengalis are, and and I think that's important. So it's not just about like getting past the accent. You can have an accent, but if you can structure a sentence, it's basically the fluidity um, of the sentence itself. Exactly. I mean, I also our paths are different, right? Yeah. So we're yeah. talking about Indian people in America who came on visas based on their merit. Bangladeshis who come here are working jobs yeah. that are working class jobs. So yeah. we are fruit vendors. Yeah. We right. are yeah. taxi yeah, yeah. workers. No, yeah. but even the ones you know? that are, even Bengalis that are, uh, that are educated in Bangladesh, our sense structure is very, very different. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, for example, and actually Indians have it too, so it's not just Bengalis. But it's like, you know, in Bangladesh, they'll say, I mean, I mean, Purikadibo. Like, I'm Purikadibo. You translate that, that means I gave the, the exam. Like, you don't say, I gave the exam. If you say, yeah, I mean, gave the exam, it sounds like you proctored the exam. Mm-hmm. But you can't say this. You have to change that to say, I took the exam. But if you translate to the Bangla, that doesn't work. I mean, exam nisi, that doesn't work in Bangla. It's like, stuff like that. Like, you notice, like, sentence structure is very, very important. And you can get past the accent, but if right. you can't structure a sentence in Bangla, because uh, a lot of times, and my parents, my dad does it too. Like, when he wants to say something in English, he'll say it in Bangla and then translate it. But you can't really do that. That's sure. something you have to be, I, I just feel like, I re- realized recently that you have, to be, you have to be conscious about. But, but because I know you have to go, but I want to make sure people, A, know where to find more, uh, about more, about what you're working on. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, and also just like, how do people get like a politics 101, community organization 101? Like, what's like a really good source to get that? There really isn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so in um, city politics, in New York City politics, there are very few Bangladeshis, and forget about there being Bangladeshi women who are working as directors of their council person. Um, there are very few of us, and then there's there's some Muslims. So we have a coalition of us who like are literally running the city, right? Like so, when legislation passes or when like Muslim ban, you know, was like reinstated, when family separation stuff was happening, all of this is active work. Um, when after the New Zealand attacks, organizing press conferences and rallies and solidarity marches, um, these are led like to keep in like just I just want everyone to keep in mind when the city is doing these things, it's mm-hmm. because there is a Muslim person in office. There is a Bangladeshi person most likely in, in working right, in the office. Right. Because uh, right now in city council, there is no Bangladeshi city council member. There's one uh, Muslim council member, Danique Miller. Um, there are only 11 women council members out of 51 
city council members in New York City. At the citywide, there's no women who, like, no, like our comptroller is a man, our mayor is a man, our governor is a man, and they're all white men. Um, so being critical about the fact that, like, some of these positions are completely closed off um, until, like, your merit shows up somehow whether you are really involved in your community and trying to like bring in more trees or like you started a nonprofit that is providing services um, or that you are helping some grassroots initiative um, get funded. Um, but you know, if this is of interest to Bangladeshis, like I would be happy to curate something that is like a politics 101. Like what are the, what are the ways in which you as a constituent in a place where you have been living for more than 10, 15 years reclaim um, your hood mm -hmm. um, and then several of us are uh, have co-founded a group called the Bangladeshi Feminist Collective all of us are women who are Bangladeshi and community organizers so like some of us are in politics and like city agencies some of us are um, doing work um, to protect workers rights Bangladeshi workers rights domestic workers gender equity work um, mental health wellness issues and yeah several of them are counselors and within like dv work um and so have a brevity of knowledge that like uh still we see like when we're in panels or when we're in events we're like the only bangladeshi person there and so i don't know what that would take i don't know if it's because like a lot more people are on instagram um, and building online portfolios mm -hmm. which is okay but like you know at the end of the day like we don't live on Instagram. Yeah. We live in a place where Muslims are banned from coming into you know the U.S. Right. or like your kid's school or the school you used to go to doesn't have books that it needs. Or like right now, the most critical conversation: SHSAT screening, um, integration, school integration, and the L train. Like all of these things need our voices too. Um, so I would be happy to do something like that, um, but there are there are very few pipelines that are also focused on building uh, young people to run for office. Um, so you know I would be happy to share some of that out. Uh, but people can find me on Instagram at shabanana. It's s h a dot banana spelled the way banana yeah we'll link we'll link all your uh, <laughs> we'll link all your uh, social media profiles yeah, on, on, to on the podcast, yeah. podcast and also you're you're a part of the muslims collective muslim right? writers right. Collective, right? Found yeah. you mm -hmm. found that, right? i have now transitioned from my role because okay. i believe that like every few years new leadership i agree to take on the, exactly. the work perfect um because you're running so, for mayor right no. <laughs> well, i hope so i don't know you know i don't know did we just announce something <laughs> She's, um, not, she's not saying no. So she's not saying no. Kensington in the pocket. I'll, I'll get Queens. <laughs> Maybe you'll get Staten Island. Well, yeah. Staten Island is another, is another thing. Like, Republicans run Staten Island. Yeah, I've mobsters. been to Staten Island twice in too. my whole life. Yeah. I've been there here for 19 years. There's actually a, a growing Bangladeshi population in yeah. Staten Island. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah, they're a little. You know, and one of the reasons we and one of the reasons we moved to Staten Island wasn't when, one was what, what I explained, but also it was affordable. That's right. Right, because yeah, Kensington, I came to a point in 2005. I mean, we we looked around in 2005, and and, and that was two, that's 14 years ago. I mean, there was we couldn't afford anything to buy because we just wanted to. I wanted to stop renting, and then Staten Island was the only borough we yeah. could afford. So that's why we right. actually moved to Staten Island, and a lot of Bengalis did that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I, mean, I, I have a, many relatives. We gotta who go live in, I want to do a vlog there. 
That'd yeah. Interesting. I mean, there's nothing much to vlog about. I'll be well, honest it just with happens. We've done a vlog like, in every borough. The people oh. who are representing Staten Island are Republicans in a state that is Democrat. Democrat. Yeah. So that means something for the borough. And like, I mean, I'm sure if you decide to really get involved in like your particular neighborhood, you'll see that like maybe the place that is having these conversations have not a single Bangladeshi there. Mm -hmm. But during um, the last election cycle, Bangladeshis helped Max Rose win. Mm. So there is a growing power of Bangladeshis in force. And a lot of that work also is being led by Bangladeshi women. Um, Mm. One of the critical players in that race was a woman named Shahana Masum. Um, And again, she's in the fold of electoral politics in New York City. So there are ways to get involved and the community board is the first entry point. Okay. So okay. We would definitely love to organize something like that soon. Yeah, we would, we, absolutely. But uh, anyway, thank you for coming on and uh, I know you're super busy. So yeah, they really thank you for coming on. I'm glad to, you know. This is a great conversation, Sean. Be a part absolutely. of Absolutely, I learned a lot. Um, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Yeah, man, I gotta go find out who my council members. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do. Alright, guys. Live? I live in Jackson Heights. Bye, everyone. It's-